Hello. It was like you had a sense of exactly when my finger pushed that button. <laughs> my finger depressed the key, and you knew immediately the podcast had begun. Welcome, everybody, to the Word on the Hill. We are the Lanky Guys. My name is Scott Powell, and I am Mother. B- Dear Musset. Is that what I said? Did I do that? Yeah, you did that. You did a little glitchy, dude. A little glitchy. Guess what I think? Talk, talk to me a little glitchy. This is going to be the, the day that, this is going to be the week that this podcast explodes. Dude, really? Hundreds of thousands of people flocking. Dude, what, what do you like think I feel like my numbers have been somewhat stagnant. They've just been flat. I, mean, and like I feel like it's the time for growth. 9,000. No, it's great. <laughs> number, number dropping. No, it's good, but I'm ready. I think we need to spread. We need to, we need to advance. It's the summer times, you know, we never put that much effort into the marketing of the podcast, or at least I don't. You know what I mean? We do them, we, yeah. we keep the show going, we keep the, keep the raft afloat, but I think we need some, some marketing. So you guys, tell all your friends. Now's the moment. I know we say to tell all your friends, but for real, tell your friends. Put it on your Facebook feeds, put it on your Pinterest, Pinterestastics, put it on whatever you do, and tell your friends. If you write for a Catholic media publication, you should tell them about us too. I just feel like it's time for it's time for this the ship to blow up, dude. That, I, that's the mere, mere, <laughs> merely by saying it, we we've constrained ourselves from not being able to blow up because oh, shoot. I mean, isn't that how it is? It's like it's I like no, I don't know what that means exactly. You know what? It's like it's like this. If you've ever been single, mm, I have, and and you know that moment where you're like, all I want is a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> and like, shoot and, and, you and have, that's the moment you're never gonna find one. and never so are you saying i've set us up for disaster absolutely in oh. fact our numbers are gonna go down well you know what even if our numbers do go down we are gonna work as hard as we can we're gonna put on the best darn doggone podcast you guys have ever seen so senor glitchy so what's happened is that if you didn't hear the cut line we actually stopped the Nobody podcast heard the cut and line. debated back and forth between they're not we used to do this do you know how neurotic we are i know how neurotic i am i know how neurotic you are too i mean mm-hmm. and that's significant so speaking of neuroses it is the 22nd sunday in ordinary time deuce deuce our first reading <laughs> is coming from the book of Sirach, also known as Ben Sira, also known as Ecclesiasticus, also known as um, Jesus Ben Sira. And uh, it's, it's uh, Sirach uh, 22, verse 22. No. Come on, that was last week. You were so last week. <laughs> it is Sirach, chapter 3, verse 17 through 18, <laughs> verse 20. Do you know why it jumps from 18 to 20? Um, because so, 19 isn't worth it. 19 is non-exent. It does not exist. Really? And then verses 28 through 29. We'll talk about that later. Okay. Then we have the Psalm 22, verse 22 through 22. Stop it. This is what it feels like to be with you. <laughs> no, it does not. <laughs> I did this one time. The responsorial, the responsorial Psalm is Psalm 68, verses 4 through 5, 6 through 7, and 10 through 11. Awesome. Our it second awesome. reading is from Hebrews 22, verses 22 <laughs> through 22. Hey, Father Peter. Uh-huh. Hey, Father Peter. Uh-huh. How does Moses make his coffee? Dude, he brews it. That was what made us big to begin with. Dude, that was... That would, somebody, uh, um, I think they posted it on my Facebook page. Oh, oh yeah. Um, oh, gosh, why am my mind blanking? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's, it's big on the internet right now. <laughs> We're huge in Singapore. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 12. You looked this up, didn't you? You looked up our numbers recently, and uh-huh. we are huge. In, there's like two of you in Singapore who listen to us. Shout out to Singapore! 
<laughs> Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 19, jumping to chapter uh, to verse 22 through 24a. So we did have Hebrews 22, essentially, is what you're saying. Uh, we it is this reading series does include verse twenty two yes <laughs> it it leaves out the the jump it was this was funny I I was really uh, focused on trying to find out what was left out of each of these readings <laughs> the jump did you read the context of mm-hmm. Hebrews the jump is about stoning goats so there's that that's why the church kept that one out <laughs> dude one time we had a rent, really we had a rental property up here and and some of our Catholic students were renting it and they decided to get a goat. I remember that goat. Yeah, and the, that goat was like the pet goat, man. It was Billy Goat. Anyway. And then our gospel is from Luke 22, verses 22 to 22. I'm embarrassed for all of us. Luke chapter 14, <laughs> verse 1, then jumping to verse 17, 7 through 14. Scott, really, do you think that I was not going to push that to the, as, as far as I possibly could till it was funny? Of all the jokes to, to recycle. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that one? I'm just saying. <laughs> Do what you can do what you got to do though. Whatever makes you feel. Oh good. my gosh! So I have to say, my first uh, love uh, in scripture okay. was is, the book of Sirach. Is it really? Was it really? Is it was. It, was it? Is it, it slash? Was it really? Uh huh. Wow. Be- because How come? there is a section. Do tell. When I was in art school, I was like, I was like, I wonder what's in the Bible about art, and um and there is a there is a passage that talks about the difference between. A scholar of the law uh, and somebody who uh, is uh, a potter or a blacksmith and a coppersmith, and it talks about the difference between um, leadership and making pottery. It's, so it's actually very intriguing. But leadership and then and making jewelry. Well, you know, it's funny, and I think we've talked about this. I, what I thought you were going to say is actually something else. Hmm. Because the way that Sirach, well, Sirach is part of the wisdom literature. Sirach is one of the uh, deuterocanonical books, hmm. which means that our Protestant friends don't include this in their Bibles, nor do our Jewish friends. Um, although you do, I think there is evidence that Jesus was familiar with Sirach. Anyway, um, the way that wisdom is talked about in this particular genre of biblical uh, biblical books, wisdom is talked about as a skill. So, you remember that word chokmah? It's the Hebrew word chokmah, which, which is the same... Word that's used to describe someone who has a skill of like um, craftsmanship, right? So someone who is skilled at um, at uh, carpentry or metallurgy or yeah, yes, he's showing me his little wood carving. It, that makes it sound trite. His really cool wood carving thing. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know what to call it. Yeah, hokma. But hokma, having wisdom, it's not just this thing. Oh, I know some wise things. It's a skill that is developed and is trained like a master carpenter or something like that. That that's how wisdom is seen in the wisdom literature, which is important because as someone who is an artisan or a craftsman, somebody who has an abstract degree and abstract knowledge like theology, like somebody like me, it's fun to, who, who would love to fancy himself someone who actually does something real. It's fun to think of the idea of philosophy and wisdom and theology as an actual artistry, as a mm. chokmah, as a skill, mm. a hard skill, so to speak. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that's the way that wisdom speaks about it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and that's the 38th chapter of Sirach, by the way, concerning mm. physicians, tradesmen, and craftsmen. <laughs> That's and, convenient. Yeah, and it's just I just love it, and and then it and then thirty nine goes into the student of the law and praise of God, which is like those two contrasted to each other, just wonderful. But what happens with Sirach um, is he is himself developing the hokma of wisdom literature. 
Yeah, I mean, he's, he's again, within a tradition of wizardry. So here's the thing that's interesting. I, I actually did some research and learned this today. Part of the reason that we call it wisdom literature, and again, we're talking about the Book of Wisdom, which uh, there is a Book of Wisdom, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Sirach, you know, these. There's a whole genre outside of the Bible of wisdom literature that existed in, like, Mesopotamia now, and Babylon and Egypt. Are you talking kind of a, a proverbial kind of set of literature that exists outside of it? Are you making a joke? I am making a joke. Oh come my on. Gosh. Per, come on. Let per- me make my point. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. I'm making you and letting you. I know. Thank you. I thought an awkward pause was necessary. <laughs> but there is this genre that existed outside a of a proverbial the, genre? Oh my gosh. Outside of the Hebrew tradition. But the 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 genre was used in these other cultures specifically at training priests or ministers and how to do their job. Oh. And so really what wisdom literature is concerned with is character formation. And in all these other cultures, there's these sort of proverbial books and writings <laughs> that talk about how to build a particular kind of character. Because for them, being a priest, being a minister, being a leader in these cultures is really not about, okay, this is how you swing the incense and this is how you you know, stand at the altar and these are the kind of vestments that you wear. It's about formation of character and a building up of the chokmah of wisdom. Yeah, You have to be learned and skilled in these things. You have to develop and hone these things if you are to be a spiritual leader to these people, which is just a beautiful concept because yeah. I, I, you know, I, I don't know in your own seminary formation how much of it is like, okay, this is how you do a homily. This is how you do these things. This is how you do, you know, counseling and all the things that are so necessary rather than this is how we are going to form you as a human being mm. and form your character so that you are the kind of person who can lead others to Jesus Christ. Mm. You know what I mean? I think yeah. there's actually been a shift in recent decades in seminary formation that, that is more toward character. I agree. Which was how the ancients looked at it. So Sirach actually falls in that. And so it's a bunch of imperatives. This is how you were to think about the world. And the other thing to know about Sirach, it's written around the time. Now, we're not 100% sure. It appears to be written around the time just before the Maccabean revolt. revolt. Okay. So the book of Maccabees. It, it doesn't appear to have happened yet. There's a reference to a particular high priest from Jerusalem um, who lived about, you know, 180s BC, 190s. So we think Sirach is around 100, you know, 180s BC. So 180 years-ish before Christ. So what we're talking about, and it's interesting, what we're talking about is a people who are still for all intents and purposes, in exile, right? right? Israel is by and large living back in the land. They have Jerusalem again. There's a high priest, because Sirach refers to him. But they're still in a kind of exile because God is not believed to be with them anymore. They don't have their, their kingdom that was promised. They're not their own people. They're controlled at this time by the Greeks. And the Greeks are really big on wisdom and learning. And so that fits within the cultural sort of milieu. But they're still in a real kind of exile. And so... What Sirach does is it really focuses on this idea of the marriage of wisdom in the Torah and that the Torah contains wisdom. In, and, and there's a reason that it does that. And it doesn't talk about the Torah, so the scriptures, the Torah kind of containing in its totality the idea of wisdom, but that the Torah needs to be studied and focused and reflected on because in it, you will find the means to attain wisdom. And the reason that that's significant, and that, that seems kind of like a no-brainer, of course. Yeah, read God's word and you'll get wisdom. 
But if you think about what the culture is doing, they've again lost a lot of what it means to be them. They don't have the king anymore. They don't. They, they still have the temple, but God doesn't dwell in it. They've lost a lot of the trappings of the priesthood and the sacrifice. It's been stripped of them. So they have to, as an mm. exilic people, try to figure out how do you find God outside of all these other means that were given to us in the Old Testament. Mm. We don't have our king anymore. We don't have this kingdom. We don't have all of these things that were so easy to look to and say, oh, this is what it means to be the people of God. We have the Torah. We have the scriptures. But a lot of us are far flung and spread to the four corners of the world. We don't see God as clearly as we used to at one point. We don't see God working in our lives as we once did. So we have to work a little harder to find him in exile because God is at work in us. And that's where this honing of the skill of, can I look at creation? Can I see the sun moving from one end of the sky to the other? Can I delve in the, into the Torah and see, okay, God is still with us. He has not abandoned us. Mm. He's still here. He's in his words. He's in his scriptures. He's in his creation. But I have to train myself to see him for what he is mm. or who he is. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And that's the skill that Sirach is really pushing. And it, it matters that it's this particular moment in history. Again, I just think there's so much that we ha can learn from this. And, you well, I mean, know, it just sounds so much like what our experience well, is. Well, yeah, exactly. Is, is we're in a time to where we're just, are, we're in a post-Christian culture. Exactly right. And so how do we actually become skilled? And like yeah. one of the things, Scott, that you taught me in such a clear way is how, like somebody comes up to you, this is a very normal conversation for our experience. Oh, you're religious. Well, my religion, my worship is the is the is nature. Yeah, right. It's creation. And you know uh, what I say? Awesome. I say mine too, and I go to mass, <laughs> mm. and I go to church, and then I will find God in creation as well. Yeah, because we want to be this either or culture. Yeah, like you find your God in church, I find my God in the mountains. Well, gosh, I find. Why do you have to limit him to one or the other? Right. That's such a false dichotomy that our culture wants to create, right? And you you taught me specifically to say, like, how do we discover and how do we look? You, you, if, in case you're wondering what that noise is, is Scott's, Scott's microphone continually is falling down. It's always sort of a, a lottery to see who gets the bad mic every week. I know. It's been me a lot lately. It's been you a lot recently. Um, but that you can have this moment of saying, what is the starting point? Yeah. And to have the skill enough in your life to say, I don't care what I'm going to get. I'm going to listen for a starting point to be able to walk with somebody down the path mm. of a true encounter with Jesus Christ. And they can get, they can feed me anything. They can say, I am this, but then the skilled nature of what we do. And that's, so, the, so that, that, that's what Sirach's trying to do is saying, here's a skilled way of living a life, actually being invested within the truths of the scripture of what God's revelation is in a manner that is going to be total in your life so that you can help guide others. And what it helps to do, so you're, you're, you're giving a much more articulate and eloquent version of meeting people where they're at or where they are. I hate, you don't want to end it with a preposition, meeting people where they are. Right. Let's be clear about that. But also, that's what God is doing in the wisdom literature. He's, you know what? I'm proud of it. It's meeting God, his own people. It's meeting Israel where they are. And there's this temptation that we all have. And I read a lot of like Catholic blogs and literature and news and stuff like that, you know, from all different kind of sides of the Catholicism from right to left, conservative, liberal, all that stuff. But there's always this temptation to be like, well, 
if only it was like it was back in the good old days. Right. Or if only we had this thing. Or if Golden only, era thinking. Yeah, that kind of thing. And it's just human nature. You know, if only we had this, then my life would be perfect. Right. And you got to think Israel is thinking, you know, if only, <laughs> I mean, and rightly so, if only we hadn't been thrust into exile, <laughs> everything would be great. Right. And you can see where they're coming from. If only we hadn't lost our kingdom and the blessing and all these things. And it's just easy to think that way. And to do that, though, ignores what God is doing in the here and now. And uh, I, I was presented this by um, uh, by Joel Barstad. He said, you know... love Joel Barstad. Uh, me too. And uh, Joel was talking about um, how golden era thinking says mm. it was so good back then. He says, right. we must change our mentality to golden chain thinking. Ooh, I like that. That, that there are links uh, that are constantly being forged between what was, what is, and what will be. Ooh. And that, the, and that we're... That's uh, a good that, doxology. Right? Yeah, and that we are, <laughs> we are really responsible to actually find those and to participate within the, 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 the golden chain. I love that. That's really good. Yeah, because because if you think about it, it, it's always being forged. I mean, yeah. th- w- that's what we're trying to participate that in, right. in in what we're doing in in the Lanky guys right here right. is saying like you no, know, th- there are such beautiful things that we have inherited, and we want to contribute a verse to this tremendous poem in the present time, in the for present the sake moment of the future, for the sake of the this, future. This is the whole structure of the liturgy, right? Um, Christ, who was, who is, and is to come, right? right? The past into the present for the sake of the future, all these things. And so, so we want to have a hokma. We and and yeah. I mean th- that's our methodology. It's not just that we we uh, like. I bring in pop culture references. I try to thwart you and make absurdities because yeah. what that what, that's actually how we work in a present modern age. Yeah. Okay. Or it's just no. Me. It's true. No. It's true. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. So all that being said, all that sort of backdropping, we actually haven't looked at the reading yet, but <laughs> but, it, but it's good because into that whole picture, that whole milieu, that that thinking, then we can read this, and they're not just rando. Oh, here's some kind of nice proverbs about being good to each other and stuff. No, there's a context to these mm. things. And again, if you remember, the whole genre in that part of the world was about training people to be priests. Then we read something like Sirach, or we read the literature in light of the new covenant. And we're like, mm. oh, this is God actually training us for the new priesthood that we've mm. been given. This yes. is not just, oh, these are nice sayings that have been passed down. Right. I need this to form myself, to, to build this chokmah so I can look at the world rightly. Right. So in that light, and in a state of exile, in, in light of what's happening in the world of its time, pulled into today, my child, Sirach says, conduct your affairs with humility and you will be loved more than any giver of gifts. So humble yourself the more, the greater that you are, and you will find favor with God. Now remember, we're also talking about a people of God. He's writing to a people of God who have been stripped of their status in a very real way. This is God's firstborn son, the nation of Israel, the the, the chosen one, the ones who were given the kingdom and the blessing. They've had those things stripped from them. They have been humbled. And a lot of what this is saying is, Accept your humility. Accept the humility that God has already given you. Do not puff yourself up to greater than you actually are. I mean, that goes back to what we've been saying in the podcast for the last couple of weeks. I mean, I have never been more affected by uh, what we were talking about, how it, the the intention for Israel to just give themselves up. Yes. that A couple of weeks ago with Jeremiah. Was yeah, that last Jer- week? Yeah, Two weeks ago? Yeah. And like, like for some reason in my heart, yeah. I've not been... That concept has been so important to me. Like... What does that actually mean? And and th- like that's yes. what it means. It says the humble yourself, the more the greater you are. 
Yeah. Like, yeah. like, like the, the, the more like, like Israel in the midst of that, like th- there's such profound greatness to just say, I'm going to humble myself. But at the same time, Israel, I mean, God is clear. They're, they're, they're the smallest of the nations in a certain sense. I mean, they've never been a Babylon or a Greece or an Egypt. I mean, they're, they're this tiny, fairly politically insignificant people in the, right. in, in a highway intersection between two great civilizations. You know what I mean? Totally. But at the same time, they are the chosen people of God. They are the greatest. And in their humility, in Israel, whether they liked it or not, being humbled the world was saved. Right. In Israel being humbled and taken over mm. by one empire after another, the savior of humanity came mm. through that humility. Yes. So I was thinking of, I mean, when it said the greater you are, humble yourself, the more the greater you are. I mean, who is the greatest of all of us? It was Jesus himself who humbled himself. I mean, I think of Philippians too, right? right. The great canonic hymn, the kenosis. He poured himself out. He humbled himself being for, you know, made in the form of humanity taking on death, even death on a cross. And because of that, God exalted him. But also Israel herself was the greatest. And she was humbled by God. And then this this next line, I don't know how it fits, but I've been uh, wrestling with this next line. What is too sublime for you, seek not. Into things beyond your strength, search not. I'm the kind of person who um, loves to... Uh, seek things that are too sublime for me. And mm. you know what I mean? There's, there's this fine line. Yeah, and, absolutely. And this is where we get to what we skipped in the book of Sirach. But I've been struggling with this. I mean, here's the thing. I love theology. I love philosophy. I love things of the mind, right? And doing this. Right. And a lot of us do. And I know a lot of our listeners do as well. You wouldn't be listening to this kind of thing. But there is a point of okay, we need to get out of our heads and we just need to get on the ground and we need to begin to do things. I mean, again, Israel can sit around and think about the theology of the exile all she wants. Right. But as she meditates on the theology of the exile, she can't miss the fact that she's actually called to convert her captors right. and called to be ministers to Babylon and to Egypt and then to Rome. To overly dwell on things that are beyond us and not simply acknowledge, I don't can't wrap my mind around that entirely, but you know what? I'm going to move forward in faith. There's something profoundly good about that. The things beyond your strength search not. Um, what, what is this intermediary? It's, well, it's actually really good. I've, I, I think about this actually often. Like this is actually the hard part in my life. I, I know that I'm a, I, I'm a smart person. Like I actually have some real intelligence in my life. Yeah. But, but I actually understand that when I get into certain realms of theology, like it is beyond me and I don't know how to make the distinctions without kind of either doing violence to what I've received or Mm. violence to pouring forth what is really actually there. And like, but, and, and that's why like, like I've been given a profound gift in my own life of, of a practical nature. Like I can make basically anything like yeah. God has given me that. And I know that I can delve into the very depths of that. Mm. And, and, and that the more I delve, the more I learn and understand. Um, sometimes the theoretical and the high theoretical and the dogmatic and the systematic, like I, I, I get lost in it. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's like, that's one of those things where it's, where it's a fine balance to say like, how do I actually engage a deeper mystery of those things that are very difficult to penetrate without getting into this place of, of, of the presumptive nature of saying like, oh yeah, I can just go into anything and I'm, yeah, I got this. 
Yeah, I was thinking, reading the gospel, and we'll get to this in a few minutes. Reading the gospel, I was thinking about Jesus' use of parables, which yeah. he actually doesn't use in this week's gospel. Which is so funny. He uses parables, though, usually when he's ticked off and when he's mad at people and he wants to hide something. And but he even says at one point he does he's, absolutely he's, he says that um, he says so that they may hear and not right. understand but they may see and not grasp. But at the same time, and, and Sirach talks about parables and being. Uh, I think it's in what we what we skip over. It's in. Um, yeah, I don't know where. It's, um, <laughs> oh, it's in verse twenty nine. Oh, it's just a different translation. The mind of an intelligent man will ponder a parable, and an attentive ear to the wise is a man's desire. Part of Jesus' uses of parables, I'm convinced, is not just so everyone will be blind and deaf. Some people will remain blind and deaf through right. them. But you present it with a parable and it doesn't totally make sense. The person with wisdom will sit with it and wrestle with it and mm. chew on it and yes. meditate on it. The person without wisdom wants to solve it. I need the answer. I need to figure it out. I need to punch through this wall so I can know what the answer is. You know what I mean? Mm. And and we do that with theology. We do that with scriptures. And people come to me, you know, just in my line of work, and they're like, what does this passage mean? And I always feel so foolish when I have to say, I don't know. They're like, well, you have a doctorate, and you study theology, and you should tell me the answers. Mm. Or where's the Catholic Church's answer book, you know, on all these things? Right. And we, we, don't, we forget sometimes that part of our job is just to chew on things. And that's actually really good to sit and to meditate and to wrestle and to ponder. And I know the, the, the Sirach speaks against pondering in a certain sense, but I think it's that the sense of I have to own this. I have to conquer this. I have to get this and wrap my mind around it. That's not what God is asking of us. There are things that he just wants us to sit with. Yeah. And I imagine there were people who heard his parables, and he spoke in parables because there were some people who he knew their minds would be closed and their ears would be closed and their eyes would as well. Right. But I bet there were others in, that con- in, in, those, in those crowds who heard those parables and went home at night and stared at their ceiling and said, hmm. I'm going to think about that, and I'm going to chew on that, and I'm going to wrestle with that riddle. What does it mean? Right. In a very good way. You know what I mean? In the very best of ways. Absolutely. Because what the Old Testament fundamentally warns us against is taking what is not rightfully ours, reaching Mm. out and grasping for things. And too often we want to grasp at spiritual truths so that we own them, we have them, we take them, That's rather than the passive which you mentioned the canonic hymn yeah yeah yeah. though he was in the form of god jesus did not deem equality something to be exploited or grasped at yeah 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 but rather he humbled himself accepting the form of the slave yeah and 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 it's like and because then every every truth one in the midst of that is like powerful and beautiful and and like yes is received as gift Yes. Not as um, as 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 um, punishment. <laughs> punishment. No, Sometimes I was just thinking, or every is received as um, as some sort of masculine expression Ooh, yeah. of intellect. Machismo. Like, machismo. Well, you know, I I do struggle with that though. At the same time, and sometimes it feels like a flaming fire. And then mm. here comes Sirach says, "Water quenches a, a flaming fire," and I think of wisdom being like that water. True wisdom quenches the the flaming fire of having to know and to grasp and to. It's not even comprehending and understanding. It's me owning it and conquering it and taking it. You right. know what I mean? There's a difference. We should want to understand. And let me be clear we should look for understanding. We should look for wisdom. We should be able to look for answers. And God wants to give us answers. But. 
there is a fine line between taking those answers yes. and grasping after them and pondering and meditating and letting God open our minds. Which I think the responsorial yes, of the responsorial psalm good. speaks to that. It says, you provide for the needy. Well, even before you get that, look at the response itself. God, in your goodness, you have made a home for the poor. Who are the poor? Well, Jesus talks in the Beatitudes about different kinds of poor, right? There is a poverty for me when I have my PhD and I have to say, I don't understand what this means. I don't right. know what the church means when she says that. I don't get this scripture passage. Right. There is a sort of a self-imposed poverty. Right. I am poor. Well, guess what? God, in your goodness, you have made a home for that. Right. And then it moves on to exactly what you said. I mean, like poverty and neediness, like, yes. like, which is precisely the antithesis of yeah. some sort of uh, grasping. Yeah. It says that, I, it, it, I mean, whenever you look at a character within a movie or a TV show or a story, they have two things always going on in their lives. They have a desire and they have a need. Mm. And the need is 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 a vulnerability in their life. They, okay. they have this real need. So yeah. you'll have the character who needs to connect with the um, somebody in their life. They're yeah. a superhero. Mm. Then they actually need real human intimacy and vulnerability and connection. Mm. But but they have this desire to defeat the the bad guy. Mm. And and the neediness precisely is what the bad guy is always trying to exploit. Yeah, absolutely. He says, I'm gonna take Spider-Man's girlfriend. And I'm going to take her and she's going to be, and it's, but it's precisely, he actually has this pro deep need. Which is the story of Jesus. The evil one comes and tries to exploit Jesus's weakness and he uses his weakness to defeat death. Mm. I mean, the, the analogy you just used with superheroes, I mean, mm. that's, I mean, that's everything. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to derail you, but that's what you said was there's, so profound. There's no derailing. That's just compounding. Boom, boom. Shake the broom. Speaking of Hebrews, <laughs> no, no, this is cool. So I, I <laughs> did you just do that? That was, yeah, I did. Did you, that was not a segue. That was, no. that was, that was, um, um, in the DJ terms, that would be, I can't remember. Dang, darn it. I've been, I've been trying to become a better DJ. So I'm like trying to study up on like what the terms are. And, and so you have like a fade in, you've got a beat match. And then sometimes you just have a cut. It's just, you cut one song and you start another song. And that was a cut. Thanks, man. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They use that oftentimes in hip hop, I've found. This is basically hip hop. Yep. This podcast. Uh huh. Hip hop. Hip hop anonymous. Um, Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, okay, okay. Here, here, I've been trying to find. So there's talk about fire in Hebrews. And I was kind of barking up the wrong tree, thinking, okay, there's fire in Hebrews, there's fire in Sirach. What's the connection? And in, in kind of uh, going the wrong direction, I found a new direction. I was Ooh, really excited about Hebrews. That so, sounds very Israeli of you. It, yeah, Israelite. Yeah, brothers and sisters, you have not approached that which could be touched, a blazing fire and a gloomy darkness and a storm and a trumpet blast and a voice speaking such words that who heard begged that no message be further addressed to them. Mm. So you have approached that which you have not approached that could, which could be touched, which is a very circuitous way of saying you have approached that which could not be touched. You've <laughs> grasped after things that are not for you, uh -huh. that you could not handle. Uh -huh. and, and really what, so here's, here's to wrap our minds around what, what Hebrews 12 is doing. And we've been in Hebrews for a while. And Hebrews, if you remember, is, is creating this, it calls itself a word of exhortation for Jewish Christians living in the Holy Land who are struggling with keeping up this faith. We have this Jewish heritage 
you know, I, I mean, I, I imagine we talked about, you know, being one of these people who everybody around you is preparing for war with Rome and you have this Jesus who told you not to prepare for war, to run to the hills, to turn the other cheek, all this stuff. But not only that, I mean, imagine being, for Pete's sake, imagine being one of the first Christians. Like this stuff is hard enough for me to wrap my mind around. Yeah. Imagine you're, you're trying to live this faith. Your whole community is about to go to war. You're, you're perceived as an idiot. And you're like, okay, wait a second. So the disciples are like, we don't need the high priest anymore because Jesus is the high priest. But I see Caiaphas over there, but I don't, I don't see this high priest Jesus. But it's because he vanished out of our sight. And now he's in the form of bread or something. And we don't need the temple anymore because he's the temple somehow. And we don't need the liturgy over here because there's a new liturgy. But it, I mean, just imagine trying to wrap your mind around all that. And just wanting to be like, you know what? I don't get this Jesus, how he's high priest and he's temple and all this stuff. But I see Caiaphas over there and I know him and he makes sense to me. And there's the temple and there's the liturgy. That's comfortable. Maybe I'm just going to throw in the towel and go back to what I know. And so what Hebrews is trying to do is create this constant juxtaposition saying, look, if you realize Jesus is high priesthood, you would never go to Caiaphas as high priesthood. If you realize Jesus is the temple, you would not need that stone and mortar temple in Jerusalem. If you realized the new liturgy, you would never turn back to the old liturgy. You would never even dream of it. So it's constantly this back and forth between what God did in days of old and what he's doing in these new days, mm. in these last days. Yeah. And chapter 12 is the climax where he's giving his sort of last, okay, my final fervorino, this is where I'm going to punch it hard in the face. <laughs> and he's talking about really the juxtaposition of the old law and the new law. And what he's saying here is go all the way back. You have approached which could not be touched, a blazing fire, gloomy darkness, a storm, and a trumpet blast. What is he describing? The throne room. Mm-mm. It's a very specific moment in salvation history. Trumpet blast. Blazing fire, gloomy darkness, storms, trumpet blasts. Oh, and, and, uh, and gloom and a tempest. Yeah, that's the um, the uh, the uh, uh, Exodus. When... Yeah, exactly. It's it's Mount it's, it's Mount, Mount Sinai. Sinai. Absolutely. Remember when, when God descends on Mount Sinai to give them the law. There is clouds and gloom. There's and, fire. And everybody begged that they not have any more words addressed to them. Exactly. Begging the message to be for Because remember, at the beginning in the Exodus, when God was giving the law, he wasn't just giving it to Moses. It says in Exodus that he actually spoke it in first, sorry, in second person singular to each and every person. So literally when he gave the Ten Commandments, he was like, you, Peter Musset, shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You, Steve Baselli, shall not steal. You know, literally every, sorry to pick on you, Steve, but every single person addressed individually. Can you imagine the, th- the, the, the thunderous voice of God speaking to you personally in the midst of a storm and fire and lightning and trumpets. You're like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. The only thing that we have pop culture-wise that actually comes to equivalence of that is the moment when Voldemort decides to speak to all of, all of, of uh, the, the school and everybody who's fighting at the last stand at the end of the seventh book. It always comes down to Harry Potter. It always comes down to Harry Potter, yeah. which some people are like, can't believe you said that. <laughs> so this is the first law. And he's like, just think about this. Here's God speaking. He seems so inapproachable. You could not grasp it to the point where the people begged God, don't tell mm. us, just send Moses for Pete's sake. Right. And now 
and we jump. And he talks about goats who touch the Mount Sinai being stoned and stuff. That's what we skip. <laughs> but then he says, but now you have approached Mount Zion. Now it's Sinai, but Zion. So there's the juxtaposition. First it was Sinai, now it's Zion. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So earthly to heavenly, Sinai to Zion. Uh, countless angels in festal gathering, the assembly of firstborns enrolled in heaven, God the judge of all, the spirits of the just made perfect, Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, not the old covenant that made you shake in your boots, Mm. fearful, terrified. Now there's a new covenant that you can approach on a new mountain, Calvary, the new Zion, with a new priest, a new Moses, who climbed that mountain to receive that law to give to us, that you can approach with confidence. You see, unless you know the story of salvation history and see what he's doing, you're like, oh man, that's a pretty, that's a better deal. But then the way that he ends... Um, the mediate Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood that speaks more, more eloquently or more articulately in Hebrew than that of Abel. The blood of Jesus spoke more eloquently than the blood of Abel. What did the blood of Abel say? What did it speak? Do you remember? Um, it said, I uh, cried out for vengeance. The blood of Abel, remember? It, and who is, is God said, I hear the blood of to Cain. I hear the blood of Abel crying out for vengeance. The blood of Jesus speaks more eloquently. What does the blood of Jesus say? Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. You have the blood of vengeance and the blood of forgiveness. I mean, th- again, this juxtaposition, that line is so striking to me. Yeah. Have vengeance on them, Lord. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Again, what Hebrews is trying to show you is if you only realized what you have entered into, this profound mystery, and you understand it in light of salvation history, how could you possibly go back to the blood of vengeance? How could you possibly go back to Sinai, the seat of fear? How could you possibly go back to this mountain which is unapproachable and untouchable when you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the heavenly Jerusalem, to the living God, to a blood that says, forgive them? How on earth could you turn back? Mm. Wisdom is the skill to begin to sit and to comprehend that wow. that actually makes sense. Yeah. Hebrews kind of blew me away Dude, this week. Dude, that, that's really big and beautiful. Yeah. I am like laid out. And so that is a good lead in to um, the gospel. Yes, it is. And we're still, remember, we're still in this travel narrative. So as we've been the last few weeks, Jesus is en route to Jerusalem. Everything he's do- is doing has got that intention. And so now, now we jump again in this reading. So it begins by saying on the Sabbath, on a Sabbath, Jesus went to dine at the home of one of the leading Pharisees. And, and we, we have, we've, those of us who are sort of well-formed and are serious about our faith, I think for most of us, we read that and instantly we're like, oh, home of a Pharisee. He's going to stink. He's going to be a jerk. Something's going to happen. You know what I mean? Yep. We're sort of set up, which I actually don't think is the case. So he goes and dines in the home of this leading Pharisee. The people were there observing him carefully. And what we jump over is that this guy comes to him with dropsy, this disease, and um, asked to be healed on the Sabbath. You don't get, now other gospel accounts have, have different stuff going on, but this guy comes to Jesus. He needs healing. Nobody seems to call Jesus out, but Jesus sort of just says, he, he probably reads their hearts. And he's like, look, I'm going to heal this. Basically, I'm going to heal this guy. And what have you, you know, 
who of you, if you, you had an animal who fell down a well on the Sabbath, you're going to pull it out, right? Right. Or if your child gets hurt on the Sabbath, you're going to help him because that's what you do in the Sabbath. You're misunderstanding the Sabbath. You don't get in Luke the conflict. You just get Jesus explaining himself. And then at the end of it, he heals this guy and he's amazed. And then he told a parable to those who had been invited, noticing how they were choosing their places of honor at the table. And he says, when you were invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not recline at the table in the place of honor. A more distinguished guest than you may have invited. And the host who invited you both may approach you and say, give your place to this guy. And you're going to have to go in with embarrassment. So he's basically unpacking that first reading from Sirach in a lot of ways. But here's what I'm struck by. Now, this is strange. I know Luke says it's a parable and it's kind of a parable, but it's, it's really not a parable properly speaking. It's more of an analogy. He's like, say you were at a meal and there were all these things happening and you had to lose your seat. When Jesus gives a proper parable to Pharisees and people who are kind of naysayers, he's always veiling something pretty heavily. Um, it's hard to unpack. Even the disciples, usually when Jesus gives parables, they're like, what did you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. This is pretty straightforward. And what Jesus does is he tells this, he gives his instructions in the form of imperative. He sounds like Sirach. Right. He's not saying, oh, there's the story about this person who had, you know, a ewe lamb, or there's this person who is throwing a feast and da-da-da-da-da. He's like, no, you, individually. He's like God speaking from Sinai. Yeah. He's saying, when you do this, here's how you ought to act. And you get the sense, I get the sense, and I, I, I need to do some more research to back this up. When Jesus speaks that directly and that clearly, yeah. it's usually a pretty merciful thing to do. He's mm. not trying to hide himself. He's not trying to veil himself. Right. He's not trying to trick anybody or sort of veil his identity. He's saying, look, you need to act this way, which tells me that in this particular dinner, there's an openness. Right. And the people are willing to hear because Jesus doesn't talk like this when he knows people's hearts are closed. He's like, here's how you need to act. Humble yourself. Take the place at the end of the table. Be small so that you can be raised up. He's giving, he's, he's being Sirach. And ironically, Sirach is called Sirach, the son of Jesus. Sirach, Ben Sirach, uh, Jesus, the son of Sirach, Ben Sirach, Jesus, Ben Sirach. Jesus is a new Jesus, the son of Joseph, Ben Joseph who's now giving the same instructions as an imperative. Now, remember, what is the wisdom literature doing? It's teaching priests how to be priests. Mm. What is Jesus doing? He's teaching Pharisees how to be leaders. Mm. He's teaching others who are around him how to have their priesthood. He is building his kingdom. Right. This is not Jesus at war. This is not Jesus in battle, in strife with people. There might be people who have bad attitudes there, but I don't yeah. get the impression that that's what's going on. I get the impression Jesus is saying, you need to prepare for this new paradigm. Your priesthood is changing. Your role as Pharisees are changing. You need to listen to this because I'm giving you a new wisdom and it's time to chokmah. It's time to skill yourself. It's time to master what this means. You've read it in Sirach. It's been around for 200 years for Pete's sake. Yeah. You have heard this said. Now it's time to put it into action. And there's no delaying because I'm on the way to the cross and I'm changing the whole structure of the world. So now is the time to develop your skill. There's no time to lose. Wow. And Jesus, the closer he gets to Jerusalem, the more intense his messages get the more intense his imperatives are, the more direct he's going to say, now, do it. And then you have Hebrews that is unpacking as to why that's the case. Because mm. the world has changed with Jesus. Mm. So we as priests need to read this and be prepared and conform ourselves. And despite what the world looks like, despite what our own minds and hearts might tell us, to realize, no, 
God is here. He is active. And if I conform my mind to his reality, then I'll see the world for what it actually is Mm. and not wish for a way that I thought it was supposed to be or a way that it was in the past. Because whether we like it, the Messiah is on his way home. The master is returning to the house. The servants better get ready. Whether they like who the master is or not, this is him. Yeah. I don't know. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, I think that uh, every one of you who's going to some sort of big party where they have a banquet, it's time to sit yourself at the kids table. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) That's going to be the title of this podcast. (laughs) Sit yourself at the kids table. Sit yourself at the kids table. I love it. It's because I'll tell you when you humble yourself and when people see that, Mm. I mean, what do people love about Pope Frankie? They love the fact that he went from the papal palaces to the house of, to, to a room of a servant. And he drives a Fiat. He drives, drives in a Fiat. <laughs> Somebody drives him in a Fiat. Somebody drives him in a Fiat. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, it's, but it's, the smallness of it. You it's know? the it's smallness. A, the, the, it's just, a symbolic act. Yeah, where you just say, this is actually the reality. Yeah. And like people love that. And they're yeah. super intrigued by authentic humility. Yeah. And be, because what it does is it reveals the heart of the Lord. and uh, It speaks to reality. It speaks to reality. Um, and whether we agree with the church or not, there's something like you said in the human heart. That's like, I'm drawn to that. I don't even totally know why there's something about a huge, unbelievably important world leader Mm -hmm. who's driving around in a little Fiat. There's something that compels me about that. Yeah. It's funny. I'll go to weddings and, uh, and, and I like sit in places that I know are totally determined for honor as guests of honor. Like sometimes just like you go and sit where the bride is supposed to be sitting, you know, just, <laughs> oh like, you just, just like totally oh bra- brazenly take seats that oh, are not yeah. yours because then, because you have to get kicked out. You have to take the seat oh that you gosh. actually have to get kicked out of nice because they're like, Oh man, like you can't do that. And then, then, then it's just a living parable. I'm just living out the gospels, man. I'm just living out the gospel. And then you get kicked <laughs> to the lower seat well where, whereas, Dude, if you sit at the kids' table, like ain't nobody gonna kick you out. Ain't nobody. The kids. The kids, kids can be mean. Man. Kids can be mean. They can be a little tough, dude. It's a tough crowd. Oh, that was a fun podcast. Thanks, Scott. That was fun. Thank you, Father Peter, and thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week. I mean, that is unless the uh, second coming doesn't happen before then. Yeah, which it might. So, so then in the, that in which case we'll have a rerun. Yep, <laughs> the second coming is coming, and we're getting ready. Oh boy. All right, we'll see you then, one way or the other. (laughs) The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.lankyguys.org. See you next week.